actually co-founder, right? Yeah. So actually I was uh, the founder and the CEO of Deutsche Digital uh, for many years. Amazing. I mean, I think you probably remember Deutsche Digital. Um, it was rebranded from Iconic. Uh, one of the things that we tried to do over the last couple of years is we really wanted to uh, kind of own in on the German market. And we started developing some strategic partnerships um, with different pension funds and different larger groups um, in Germany. And we kind of quickly came to the realization that it should be rebranded to something that is more German native. And it probably would be best to not have a uh, loudmouth American as the CEO. We should let my partner, Max, who's the my German counterpart, uh, really kind of run the show. So I actually stepped down from Deutsche Digital last year. Um, I'm not sure if you know this, but I mean, I was the CEO of two companies for a couple of years, um, Deutsche Digital, as well as uh, Cryptology Asset Group. Um, Cryptology, we were branded to Samara Asset Group earlier this year. So that's what I'm currently doing. Okay, cool. Uh, so David, why don't you yeah. tell me a little bit about um, what it is you do? What is uh, Art Trade? Yeah, so uh, I'm David, co-founder of Art Trade, and basically Art Trade enables uh, retail and institutional investors to invest in physical blue chip art. Um, we already also tokenized and securitized uh, digital art, but our focus is definitely in the uh, blue chip physical uh, artwork space. Mm -hmm. And as already mentioned, we already um, securitized these paintings. So we are not only tokenizing them, fractionalizing them, we are really securitizing them under the uh, elektronische Wertpapiergesetz, uh, which might be very familiar to you. And uh, yeah, that gives us so a So for those that don't frame. speak German, that's the electronic securities law that they have here in Germany. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sorry for that one. Um, but yeah, actually, it's really cool for us because it gives us a clear framework to operate in. Um, also with the like, um, sorry, here again with English, uh, crypto license registra um, that uh, basically is pretty transparent and gives also other peers that we are cooperating with like um, reporting software and asset managers to um, yeah get an overview of our assets um, and report those assets um, in the client's uh, wallets or portfolios. So, I mean, I assume that these are done via tokenization, I mean, but it sounds like it's not really necessarily NFTs per se, because that's kind of exactly what the digital art space has kind of pushed for. So maybe you could elaborate on at least what you see as the difference between what your firm offers versus, for instance, what, I mean, the big talking points are around NFTs and that kind of subsect of the crypto community. Yeah, there's definitely a big difference. So I think um, the first thing where we differ is um, the underlying is always a security. So I think the appropriate term would be security token. And um, oh, Gary Genzo would be your difference. best friend then, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, kind of, <laughs> um, but, but, but I have to say there are also, of course, more difference of, we have a strong focus on blue chip art, as mentioned, the underlying is always the artwork by an artist that has a track record of like, uh, many, many years. And I mean, we use blockchain just as a tool to kind of digitize the security, um, in future, um, make secondary markets more efficient, make listings um, more efficient and cheaper for us. Um, but we generally don't really need the blockchain to operate this. It's just an efficient way and a tool for us to do it. And um, I mean, as I, as I also told you, I have a kind of background in the NFT digital art collecting scene, and I'm still a huge fan of that space. Um, 
but we really differ. And if we tokenize an NFT, it's really about the artwork that is attached to the NFT. So for example, the JPEG data or the MP4 data and about the artist that made the artwork because our kind of um, focus, as said, is on established blue chip art. So, and this is what I think kind of inherently makes sense to me. So for instance, if you had been somebody who's known me for years now, you probably would have heard me say uh, many, many times that I don't understand, I don't get the craze necessarily around NFTs. Um, I mean, I get some of the use cases of it. I get that it proves provenance of a digital art piece, or it can also help bridge the physical and the digital art world. But I don't necessarily understand outside of that one factor which okay i can just right click save it um which i mean okay it just creates a new original digital file of that same piece i never really understood what the upside of it was as opposed to i mean my background i got into crypto when i was at the uh, deutsche Börse, right and my biggest thing was around uh, the tokenization of uh, illiquid assets as well as the tokenization of equities debts derivatives etc i developed a conviction years ago that everything was inevitably going to be tokenized and here we are six seven years later and it looks like we're on that precipice right so for me the fractionalization of art made perfect sense you take high worth uh, art pieces, you take uh, blue chip art pieces, as you call them, you divide it up into a million different little pieces, and you actually create liquidity. That, to me, sounded like a much better use case around digital art or converting real world art into digital securities, tradable digital securities, compared to the route NFT groups took, which is, okay, fine, we issue one instrument, one I guess at the end of the day, Gary Gensel would call it a security. I don't necessarily buy that argument, but one digital footprint, if you will, proving provenance of that one digital art piece. And I get that there's an air of exclusivity that you want to have when it comes to art. You want to be the one person who owns, I don't know, the Mona Lisa. I mean, I guess nobody owns it, but that's, I'm not an art guy. So that's the only one I can think of off the top of my head. Right. Or like a Van Gogh, you know, but I think democratizing and decentralizing the ownership of a Van Gogh and creating liquidity for its owners via the fractionalization seems like a much better use case, right? I mean, what are your thoughts there? I mean, I, mean, I think there are two points there. Uh, on the one hand side, you have the liquidity factor. Um, to be clear and transparent here, I think we are still not at the vision of having a really efficient, liquid secondary market for these tokenized assets, but that is our vision. And for example, Uli Spankowski, um, from Börse um, Stuttgart just joined our cap table. Um, they have also a strong vision in the field of um, uh, tokenized assets and secondary markets for securitized assets. And um, I mean, there are two approaches. On the one hand, you have the, uh, the kind of democratization of the asset class art. So as I said, we enable retail investors to invest in it. But on the other hand, and this comes also um, with the underlying security, um, it gets kind of kind of institutional, you know. Um, our kind of instrument makes it possible for uh, asset managers, family offices, private banks, um, also platforms like Bitfun Bitpanda, for example, um, to actually um, kind of sell this product to their customers. And that's a factor for us to really scale this thing outside of a very exclusive community, if you know what I mean. So on the one hand side, there's liquidity, which can change the art market completely in future. 
but we are not there yet. But I see this point, and I mean, our trade wants to be on the forefront of that. Um, Let but me ask you this. See, what do we think yeah. we have to do to get there? Um, because, I mean, I agree with you entirely, and I can talk about this from a tokenized mm -hmm. security, a tokenized equity perspective, um, which, at least in my personal view, the reason we're not there, why we don't have traded tokenized securities, is that I've always felt, for instance, every tokenization platform was going to inevitably die. I mean, you have like what, Securitize, Polymath, et cetera, et cetera, out yeah. there. And they built a tech stack for it. They built a regulatory stack for it. So in theory, it should work. But my view was there's too high of a switching cost for big institutions or big investors, the ones that truly are the liquidity. And I think liquidity is the bottleneck here uh, that needs to be solved. They were never going to switch from a Deutsche Börse, mm -hmm. from a New York Stock Exchange to a new kind of startup. I always kind of felt either that tech was going to have to be developed at the larger institutional level. Um, mm -hmm. or it was going to have to be uh, absorbed at the institutional level. Like, they, like the securitized guys of the world would have to be acquired. Exactly. I'm really, I'm really excited, actually, um, what will happen. Um, if there's the one uh, big institution, like, for example, Börse Stuttgart, exactly, that gets into yeah. the field, makes a secondary market, and, for example, enables us to make a listing there. Um, or startups like 360X, which is backed up by Commerzbank um, and Deutsche Börse 2, um, that are still not live. Um, but I stand behind the vision, even if they are kind of a, also, um, of course, we are fighting for the same market here. But I see the vision of a, of a broad secondary market. And I think Artrade won't be the player that is the secondary market. We need a secondary market to get this liquidity that you mentioned. And I think liquidity is one crucial problem. And the other problem is the asset class specifics. So in terms of a liquidity provider who doesn't have expertise in art, um, it gets difficult for him to provide this liquidity. So we need the liquidity. Yeah, you can't go to a flow traders or a Jane Street and ask them to make markets with these types of things, right? I mean, so the question exactly. is who... Who is going to make the spreads? Exactly. And that's the big question. And we we were already in deep discussions, for example, with Bankos Scheich here, uh, Solaris Bank, uh, kind of also a setup uh, 360X is working on, I think. Um, and we really decided to not dive into that field for the moment because we would be the guys providing the liquidity for the secondary market. And I mean, we all see and we all know that liquidity is can also dry up, <laughs> and I really don't it's want to. It's dried up the last six months, right? <laughs> exactly. Well, at least exactly. until at least except for the last twenty four hours. I mean, we woke yeah. up this morning to thirty thousand yeah. Bitcoin. So huzzah! It's 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 very crazy. I'm curious to see how the smaller altcoins will follow or not. Um, they seem but to be yeah. doing so a little bit, but I mean, at the end of the day. I mean, a, a lot of that's largely just because Bitcoin drags it up. I mean, as Bitcoin goes up in price, it just pulls the trading pairs with it because we don't have proper ARB uh, in crypto. You, there's not many opportunities except for cross exchange to do arbitrage like that. So like mm -hmm. intra trading pair ARB is something that people really haven't captured yet. Um, yeah, so yeah, I think yeah. it's a lot to do with Bitcoin just dragging it. But I mean, hey, whenever Bitcoin goes, uh, typically Ethereum and the rest of it ends up following. It's just, I mean, it's just a lagging indicator, right? But, but I mean, the, the interesting part for me here is also in terms of longevity of chains, uh, chains and the trend of using chains. 
And for example, I'm a heavy art collector on Ethereum, but also on Tezos. And Tezos, for example, really uh, had bad times in the last month. Uh, didn't move that strong now. Um, even Bitcoin moved that strong. And I mean, I feel in the community kind of the vibes that there are discussions uh, about what will happen in future with chains like that. So um, I'm always curious to follow that that topics too. So that and that makes sense. Um... So tell me, you have this platform where you're tokenizing and issuing the securities of uh, blue chip art. Um, I'm assuming this is physical art, not necessarily digital art, correct? Exactly. It's most of the time we already also um, tokenize, fractionalize the digital artwork by Damien Hurst. But our focus is definitely in the field of blue chip physical art. But as mentioned before, if there is a concept or an artwork, uh, that we find historically very relevant and in terms of our investment process investable, um, we will tokenize it and put it on our platform. So let me ask you this. Um, I mean, so you probably, do you come from more of like an art or a tech or a legal uh, background? Yeah. Like what, what brought you, uh, what, what, what kind of inspired you to put all these three things together? What was your background before this? So, so. My familiar background kind of, even though kind of my family members is in the art market, um, I got in touch with art pretty early on. My, my granddad is a collector. Um, I kind of grew up with art. I went to studios, I went to galleries, I Are went to museums, et cetera, PP. No, I'm not, definitely okay. not. <laughs> I'm only a collector. Got it. <laughs> um, I, I say my, my art I career mean, ended at stick figures when I was three. My mother took the pencil out of my hand and said, don't do this ever again. Well, I mean, um, look stick figure up on the Christie's website and there is an artist that really uh, gains, uh, there is one, yeah. See, mom, you <laughs> should have encouraged me more when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, the field you're now into uh, maybe has more vision into that. Yeah, perhaps. So, <laughs> but, but, but how I came to that is um, I got back in touch with art because the reality is when you're like 10 years, you don't care about uh, the studio you're into uh, or the art you're looking at, to be honest. Um, but I came back to the arts in kind of my teenage years, um, read a few books, um, came in touch with the uh, dealers and mentors of my granddad. And um, one and two also became mentors of me. And I kind of started trading uh, editions by renowned artists because there was a kind of existing, existing market for that and um, kind of went down the rabbit hole of the art market. And that really catch me because um, the art market and especially the equilibrium in the art market um, gets defined different, uh, differently than in a usual market. And there's a lot of intransparency, a lot of arbitrage opportunities. Um, and a lot of a lot of asymmetric like, information, I assume, right? Exactly, it's super asymmetric, and um, information is gold. You know, um, you have to know the oeuvre of an artist, so basically his general work, to kind of define which of the works are important, um, which might not be that relevant, which is a crucial influence factor for the price. So. Um, the buy-in price is always the first uh, factor, how big the profit can be in the future. Um, so we really try to define how important is a work to kind of get to the point, um, how much is it worth? But let's get back to the how I got uh, down the rabbit hole. So I was kind of um, part of uh, dealing a few additions, stuff like that. Um, for example, small galleries and smaller towns love to buy um, 
high grade additions of renowned artists because as said there's an established market yeah um and there are many collectors that are the poor rich you know they they have money they want to collect art but they obviously can't afford a six million Gerd Richter oil painting so what they do is buy an edition with uh, maybe 500 pieces in it um so there is kind of a own dynamic like in an nft collection um that kind of builds up within such an edition and there are also high um returns possible um by the way we will also launch an editions portfolio really soon um but that's a uh, future so that was the one perspective and the one approach to to the market art um and the other one was actually um blockchain technology i came in touch kind of late uh, later than you um unfortunately 2017 i first first things about yensh and ethereum foundation and i was hooked up you know i read about tokenization uh, i read about smart contracts that run on that chain and i thought like man this could be kind of the supercomputer uh, at least an app base um for extreme relevant applications within the financial uh, industry i mean um, i found ethereum I, before so, i fell in love with bitcoin um oh you do well, so I told you, I started really in crypto um, because I started believing in the tokenization of financial assets. I mean, I was working at the Deutsche Börse. Uh, we felt blockchain DLT had a clear use case as a stock market operator. Um, I mean, I ended up going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. And I mean, I don't know, Bitcoin kind of just spoke to me from a libertarian ethos perspective. But I still see a huge and immense value in a whole bunch of the other chains, because at the end of the day, decentralization, I view as a spectrum. Um, it's not up to me to determine what users think is a better blockchain for whatever they perceive that chain enables them to do. So that's where I still exactly. see immense upside for Ethereum. Because Ethereum does do, right now uh, capabilities, two... Bitcoin does not. Bitcoin might in the future be able to do it. And I would argue that makes it a maybe more decentralized, better central, or a better central ledger. But I mean, mm -hmm. I still see a huge upside with Ethereum. I, I mean, that's the first thing that spoke to me when I was at the Barza. Uh, I came from a, like, I have to say 2017 was kind of a first mainstream bubble that kind of came up in crypto, you know, um, and that's one access point for me to be transparent here. But I always saw then um, Bitcoin as kind of the store of value. And I also noticed that the asset managers I talk to right now that are kind of getting into the field of digital assets have big interests, most of the interest in investing in Bitcoin. And then comes nothing for a long time. And then obviously Ethereum, DeFi, protocols, et cetera, PP. But those are kind of the guys that dig down the rabbit hole then. And what, what and, I and see, I would what, say that there's, I, I think, a little bit more of an interest in Ethereum than maybe you let on there. I mean, definitely Bitcoin's in a tier unto itself with at least institutional managers right now. Yeah. Immediately after that, and I really don't think there's too big of a gap, is Ethereum. Um, and then, yeah, then it's the rest. Um, actually, no, I, I, would, I would throw stable coins interest, in there as well, yes. too. Extremely also in terms of the perspective of who is interacting with Ethereum, who is working on that. I fully agree with you. But in terms of like the traditional um, funds thinking about digital assets right now, um, that's the kind of perception I get. Um, are mainly interested right now in Bitcoin, follow that field. Um, th and then comes Ethereum, fully agree, but with that gap as mentioned. Yeah, understandable.
But but let's get back to the uh, kind of tokenization rabbit hole because that kind of hooked me up with um, with art trade because what I basically saw with kind of the big interest in the art market because I am still a kind of um, business guy studied economics. Um, I love the parallelity to the kind of art market and the photography market because photography is super old. You know, you could take photos in 1920, you can take photos in 1910, but nobody sold those. And there was not a market for photography until like 1970. And why was that? Because it was not scarce, you know? And then kind of artists started to um, build up editions, number them, you know, sign them, make them scarce, artificially scarce. And basically the same happened with the tokenization of digital assets like JPEGs or MP4. So there was the aha moment, and this is what I love about the kind of NFT uh, hype that growed that grew out of it, yeah, with a lot of shit <laughs> contained in it, <laughs> um, that artists and digital art especially found kind of its medium to uh, get sold efficiently and get scarce. And I loved how Christie's, for example, uh, got hooked up to accepted Ethereum as a, a payment option. And um, this was really the point where I was saying, okay, wow, why not use the technology um, to tokenize both the most relevant physical artworks and the most relevant digital artworks in future because I'm uh, super convinced that there are super relevant um, artifacts because I mean what should be the art of our age if not digital art I mean I'm sure it gets super relevant in future even more so that's how I got kind of hooked up on the topic in general um, and as said, I also built it a, a big collection uh, in digital art starting from like 2018, collected on known origin, super rare, um, was in that field, was in the community and kind of developed the idea in my head, did a lot of research, or, of course, also came um, in touch with Masterworks there, um, came in touch with the idea of uh, Carlo Kölzer from 360X um, and then decided really to do a vertical focus in Germany under a fully regulated um, umbrella, not with a protocol or a DAO, but with a fully regulated umbrella to not only enable retail investors, but also institutions to kind of, um, yeah, onboard these assets, uh, report them and make them accessible for um, even more investors with also uh, higher tickets. So, and I think you're definitely going about this the right way. I mean, with Deutsche Digital, uh, I mean, we created some of Europe's first regulated index funds. Um, we uh, created some of the first ETPs backed by crypto trading on the exchanges. And I mean, while the libertarian in me, I don't want to necessarily say hates regulation. Um, I think that there is a need for regulatory clarity around certain items. And whenever there's asymmetric information between parties, I think regulatory agencies have to step in to ensure that there is a level of transparency between service providers and investors or service providers and depositors, for instance, right? That's why we have regulation. I hate over-regulation though. And unfortunately we started to see that rear its ugly head. Um, but one of the nice I things mean, that yeah. I like about Europe is oh, unlike sure. the United States, it's starting to really clarify 
what its regulatory agency is over the crypto space, right? And what people don't understand is that, I mean, A, you do have to protect retail investors to a certain extent. I don't think we do that the best way in Europe or the United States right now, but I think we can all agree retail investors need protecting to a certain extent. And institutions, they need regulatory agencies because, I mean, if you're an institution and you're managing millions, billions, if not trillions of assets, your main job is deferring risk. You need to defer liability from yourself to counterparties, right? And that's why we have regulation. So we make sure that the counterparties are theoretically trustworthy. It's not a perfect system, but it actually works very well. And this is where I think a lot of people that are more native crypto degenerates don't understand why Bitcoin and other Ethereum, other uh, crypto assets can't just be directly purchased by institutions. And I think the truth of it is, is because we don't have that regulatory framework yet, or we do to a certain extent, but not perfect where re institutions are ready to jump in, but they have to defer that liability. You don't want to take on excess counterparty risk by engaging with an unregulated group. So that's why, I mean, so tell me a little bit about the regulatory regime around what you guys are building. I mean, does it fall under Mika? It falls under the Weltpapier something, something, something in German that I can't remember the, the name of it. Uh, but I mean, what does that what does that look like and how is that kind of enabled you to build what it is that you have? Yeah. So so first, my perspective on regulation is is kind of the same. I think for the whole ecosystem, the reality is we need um, regulation and I have the same opinion like you. Um, I don't like regulation. And I mean, we might be cool guys. We would not screw it up. Um, we could scale faster, et cetera, BP. But the reality is there is regulation. And as you said, retail investors need to be uh, secured. Um, and I'm a fan of it. So, I mean, it's like a necessary that... evil to a certain extent. And I don't even want to call it an evil. It's just a necessary annoyance. It is. And I see it as game rules. In a sports game, you know, you have to be uh, uh, playing with the rules, yeah? And if you know your rules, and if you play within that field and kind of challenge <laughs> challenge those two, um, you can operate pretty nice. And I mean, um, for example, when FTX collapsed, yeah, Bison from Basel Stuttgart grew super fast because they had the regulated backup. They had a trust name in the background with Börse Stuttgart. And I mean, I think at the end, it's only good for the market in all if it gets regulated the right way. Because then institutional money, pension funds, etc., PP can enter this asset class properly. And this will lead to a um, price development um, that can't be done with retail investors investing in Bitcoin. So I think for the market and for the development for the ecosystem, it's crucial to be regulated and to operate in this regulated um, uh, field. Um, how are we regulated and kind of how are we indirect, indirectly uh, regulated by Bafin? What we Okay, so it's Bafin, it's the German regulator then. Yes, sorry. Yeah, exactly. Bafin is the uh, German regulator. And um, of course, they are also following the field of tokenization of um, assets and of um, securities pretty close. Um, for example, there was one uh, company, Econos, um, that sadly kind of uh, got picked up by the Bafin. They made a press release about Econos, blocked one product from uh, from selling, and this actually led to Econos dying. And Bafin is really active in that field, so we try to be 
really clear and also um, communicate, cooperate um, when there are questions. Um, as you already said, MIFID is a really important uh, framework for us and also the EVPG, as you said, Electronic Securities Act. <laughs> I hope that was right. Um, I, I don't even know the German word, so I'm just going to assume that you got it right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the German word is Elektronische uh, Wertpapiergesetz, kind of uh, stucky. <laughs> so that, it, it, that's one of those words that it's just like six separate words that the Germans just stick together. I mean, this is why you never play Scrabble with a German. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is. Um, but I mean, it sounds really serious, you know, so um, it, it, it builds trust. <laughs> um, but actually, the framework is pretty cool. And in a setup with our um, crypto registrar that is uh, directly licensed by Bafin, um, a custodian that is directly licensed by Bafin, we can kind of work in an ecosystem, uh, tokenize the securities that we release, um, and be in a fully regulated area and in a framework that is already known to financial institutions. I don't have to explain anybody what a bond is, you know? Um, I don't have to explain anybody how to report a security with the ISIN number. Um, so this makes it easier for us to, to basically enter the market of institutions uh, and not only retail investors um, that, for example, uh, invest over at Masterwork, Masterworks. So, the, I mean, are there many other groups that are uh, leveraging this uh, regulatory framework to do something similar to what you guys have? Or are you really kind of the, I don't know, kind of pioneers getting your nose bloodied trying to adopt this new technology to what is set out in the current regulation? So I think we are the first ones that actually uh, imitate securities with the ISA number in cooperation um, with the crypto registrar with the underlying asset blue chip art. So there were already other securities, for example, classic bonds um, released by a company um, to, to gain capital um, that were already settled and also on chain. Um, but we are the first ones that uh, imitate securities with the underlying asset of a physical blue chip artwork in Germany. There are uh, companies um, like Finexity that are also using secu securities um, but not under the uh, Electronic Securities Act at the time being. So, I mean, if I am a user, like what's my journey to participate in buying? I mean, I guess what, I just sign up on your platform, transfer in some assets and I can just start buying and trading uh, immediately yeah. there? So, so basically we try to build a user experience that, does not get you in touch with blockchain because what we learned um, our customers are interested in the asset class art uh, not in blockchain and as i mentioned we use blockchain as a as a tool um, and not as kind of the main core um, product um, so how's the user journey um, basically our trade is full service so what we do is we source assets um, we build up a kind of research process in cooperation with artnet the biggest auction data bank in the world and with experts to qualify qualitative factors to kind of search get the best artworks um, of course we have also a network like paul schönewald alexander Zies, simon de puri 
um, that are globally active art dealers and have access to, for example, collections that might get sold. So what I want to say is we have also the access to kind of off-market pieces um, and get a really nice um, overview about what works are available for sale. Um, and I think this is the first crucial because uh, point, because this is also the first entry barrier for the retail investor. Um, you need a lot of knowledge, capital and network to be able to kind of source the certain artworks that are relevant for you as an asset class. So this is the first kind of service and job that we do. And we also um, get something at the end of the um, investment period. So if the asset performs nice, we get a share, a carried interest fee. So we are incentivized to um, imitate and securitize the artworks to the best possible market price. So do you have to have some sort of um, like portfolio manager, asset manager license for that? Um, because I mean, if you're like, it almost sounds like you're, maybe not necessarily making um, investment advice, but you're at least influencing a little bit by making something available. I mean, is that another piece of regulation that you're covered with there? It's definitely not. And that's also not a service of us. What we are is a platform that makes it possible um, for retail investors to make certain personal decisions to invest in assets. Um, but we want to create this platform and be sure that there are certain assets that are investable. So maybe also um, a different uh, comparable platform doesn't want to offer every fund because there might be funds that are kind of not that high of a quality because of different influ influence points. So we kind of create, that's, that's how we call it. But um, from a not regulatory way, of course, it could be compared to kind of stock picking, um, asset management in terms of picking and researching the assets, but not in terms of the uh, process uh, via investing in, uh, at Artrade. Got it. That makes perfect sense. So I want to come so, back. Oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Sorry. No, no, yeah. please. So after, after actually uh, the research process and the, the buy-in process, so what we do is the SPV companies of us, so separate entities from the holding company art trade uh, actually buy the artworks. So it's not like uh, crowdfunding. Um, the artwork is in ownership of the SPV company before we securitize the asset. And then we securitize the artwork via a chain. So we tokenize the security and the, uh, the retail investor that gets onboarded on our trade uh, just goes through a, a straightforward process like, um, for example, registering at Coinbase, yeah, also with a KYC process, no contact points to the blockchain. So there's no um, kind of knowledge or wallet required. And um, once you're KYC'd, um, paid your investment in, we open a wallet for you at Tangany. Tangany is a, um, also Buffy licensed um, custodian. Cool. Um, and uh, yeah, greetings to Martin. <laughs> Um, and, um, yeah, but actually Tangany custodies the digital assets then for the customers. And we have a basic lock-in area where you can see your investments, et cetera, PP without any contact point, um, with the chain. And then we have the kind of research, the picking, we have the securitization of the asset. And then there's also, of course, the holding period. And via the holding period, we of course do this 
the whole management. We insure the asset, um, we put the assets in certain warehouses, but we also um, exhibit the assets. And exhibiting the assets has a few crucial points with it, because on the one hand, um, of course, it's a super nice user experience to kind of um, feel that community vibes in the exhibition, stand in front of the artwork, know that you're part of this, you know, that is pretty emotional. Um, but on the other hand, if we place the works, yeah, no, we cannot monetize it, but we can kind of have a positive influence on the return. And this is kind of monetizing it because if we place the artwork in certain exhibitions, in certain museums, where it gets more relevance, maybe a catalog of an art expert that writes about the, the oeuvre or the artwork in particular, it gains relevance in the art market and it is a influence, uh, influence factor uh, for the price and the return. Okay. So, I mean, I really love the approach that you're kind of taking here. And I specifically love the fact that you are creating this like journey for people to go through a user journey where they don't need or even necessarily have to understand that they're interoperating with a blockchain, right? I mean, one of the things that is despicably horrible in crypto in general is the UI UX experience um, outside of like the exchanges because like Coinbase Binance, I mean, that's the reason they are who they are. They created a seamless user journey for people to buy, sell and trade crypto, right? Um, but you know that you're buying, selling and trading crypto. That's the only reason you would go on a platform yeah. like that. But when it comes to actual use cases, like I've always felt that we're only ever going to see mainstream adoption of crypto or of even layer one protocols, not from people buy, selling and trading and speculating on it, but from the applications that are built on top of it in a non-financial sense. So something similar to what you've built, um, where people don't necessarily realize they're interoperating with a blockchain. And what I liken it to is uh, Swift and SEPA, right? These are- uh, It's the same. Exactly. I, they're international I compare protocols it to for stocks also. You know, no. if you trade on Trade Republic, nobody knows how the trade gets settled or cleared, you know, nobody. And exactly, nobody cares. And as a kind of operator, uh, we realized that we cannot win that much. At the beginning, our slogan was democratizing the art market through blockchain. Now it's art for your portfolio. It's it's way more clear. And the yeah, and actually it's more clear. And the message is, it's art for your portfolio. It's not about blockchain. And we realized uh, also on events where we got the feedback by, invest by investors and potential investors um, for the product, not the company, um, that we don't win anything with, with the term blockchain because the guys that are interested in blockchain, they, they realize it, they pick it up because we mention it once in the FAQ, you know? And when we make a panel talk, we mention once that we settle everything on chain. It's a good buzzword to use. I mean, it's a great technology to use. I don't want to take away from it. Um, but blockchain is a good buzzword to use when you're fundraising from VCs. But when you're actually trying to get people on your platform, I find it best to avoid blockchain and crypto entirely because exactly. you either have like you're going to have maybe one or two percent of the population that go, holy shit, that's awesome. I'm, I'm in because I love blockchain and crypto. You already have a little bit of a captured audience there, but then you have 98 percent of the rest of the world that look at it and go, oh, I heard about that blockchain on, uh, I, I don't know, pick some German newspaper. like Absolutely. And they just go, I'm not sure if I can trust it anymore. And I mean, the beautiful thing about blockchain is it's a trustless 
system. They don't need to trust it, but they don't need to know that it's there. I mean, any anytime you send money on your Apple phone or iPhone or whatever, you don't care what the settlement mechanism is. You just care that you sent $20 via Venmo to your buddy that paid for drinks on the weekend, you know? Absolutely. I have the same view. And uh, as said, we realized that we don't win anything. Um, it was the opposite. And uh, it's way easier to explain now, less questions after a panel talk. Um, so I have exactly the same um, view on that, like you. Yeah. So I want to come back to a point that you made earlier, um, where you had said your view is that digital art will be the the art of the 21st century. We're in the 21st century now, right? I always forget. Uh, so the art of the 21st century. I don't think I disagree with that. But again, I'm not somebody that cares about art at all. So I mean, I see a Google image of the Mona Lisa, and I never have to go to the Louvre and wait in that goddamn line ever. Um, I'm, I'm perfectly content just seeing it on the on the Google. Now, one of the things that I think could be intriguing I mean, digital art, yes. Fractionalizing digital art, yes. I definitely think that that's exactly where we're going to be going. But over the last year, with this kind of resurgence of AI, um, I mean, it's really started to boom. We've started to see AI generate content. You have ChatGPT. You have um, its ability to create poems and songs and whatever. And you also have platforms where AI is now creating uh, digital art. I mean, AI is able to recreate art pieces around historical events, as well as art pieces around hypothetical scenarios, right? And AI is getting more and more creative, or at least people that are using AI are getting more creative. It's becoming more complex, the art that they're designing. Now, my thought around generic crypto longer term is that AI is inherently digital. I mean, at least until we start putting it in those fucking Boston dynamic machines of war. Um, but at least for the time being, AI is digital. And it's inevitable that it will require a digital currency, whether that's Bitcoin, whether it's Ethereum, uh, whether it's uh, a CBDC, I don't know, we'll see how the future plays out. But as AI will inevitably be transacting with itself kind of what the promise of IoT was many, many, many years ago. Um, I think that a digital currency is inevitable, that it's going to have to have all of these assets, all of these um, transactions, microtransactions between the Internet of Things leveraging AI uh, might be in Bitcoin, might be in a CBDC, might be in Ethereum. I don't know. Similarly, I would think that as AI, maybe we never achieve the singularity, maybe it never becomes cognizant, I don't know, but at least it's smart enough now that you could argue it's smarter than most human beings. It will probably develop an affinity for the creative or at least people will start leveraging it in a creative way where it becomes monetizable through the art that it creates. I would assume that that needs a digital currency operating therein. And I would assume that in a world where you have fractionalized digital art pieces created by AI, you might end up seeing something along the lines of a secondary market with AI kind of effectively being the market maker. I mean, is that, did you see where I'm kind of that going was, with uh, that? And I'm just completely spitballing right now. But I mean, if that kind of just, like my, my same hypothesis around digital intelligence needs digital money. Well, digital intelligence is going to need digital art, correct? 
Yeah, uh, de definitely. Um, digital intelligence will need digital art. But um, before we speak about the currency in that ecosystem, I think it's crucial to discuss how relevant will a art art be. And I mean, I don't know if you know Botto, for example, which is a DAO that um, kind of releases, I think, every month, uh, AI-generated I've AI heard of it. I have to say I've never jumped into it. Yeah, I tried it a few times um, um, and kind of voted. Um, it's basically a DAO, um, and there are contributions to the DAO through voting. And you basically vote uh, AI-generated uh, works up, and the one with the highest votes at the end of the month gets minted on the Ethereum blockchain, auctioned, I think, via SuperRare or Botto site. Um, and this is kind of a autonomous AI DAO that generates artworks. And I like the concept and just wanted to contribute a little bit. But the point I wanted to make here is I really question how relevant AI-generated art and content in general um, well, that's a very good physical. Uh, so that's a philosophical question for the ages, right? Yeah. Uh, because I mean, yeah. there's a couple schools of thought around what AI will enable for humanity. And like you have, you have the Elon Musk's of the world that think that AI could potentially lead to an inevitable evil Skynet sort of thing out of Terminator, right? Um, AI could lead to uh, the militarization of, frankly, just everything. And I do think that's a possibility. I hope to God it isn't. But then you also have people like uh, Jack Ma, um, which I don't even know if he's alive anymore. It seems like the CCP got him. Um, but you have his view on AI, where AI will basically take over any menial task that humans currently are doing and will allow us to really focus on the arts, focus on the creative, focus on what brings humans just general pleasure, right? And I would love but, to but, live but in at that reality. Point, <clears throat> actually, it's the same again. We value then the human-made uh, art, you know? AI is the tool that leads us to being maybe more creative, and I'm sure the best art um, must be made out of creative freedom, you know? Um, and this might lead to more people interacting without doing art. Um, but I'm sh pretty sure that we will value the human-made art even more. And one of the biggest challenge of the next 10 years is to differentiate between human-made and artificial. So it's going to be interesting, I think. I mean, and again, I know nothing about art, so I'm like the last person on earth that should be commenting about this. Um, <laughs> but I, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out, because I think I would agree with you that human art probably will and should be considered more scarce, right? Because an AI can just theoretically pump it out like crazy. Um, but this is where I think... I mean, one of the things that I like about what ChatGPT enables, like, it, it, it's crazy. You can go on Twitter and see people that create threads, right? Or people that are on Substack creating content. It's pretty easy to decipher which was actually written by a human and that which was written by ChatGPT. I think mm -hmm. ChatGPT and other AI like this is interesting to use as an inspirational tool. Where if you're an individual and you say, okay, I would like to achieve X, Y, and Z. I would like to create content about this, or I would like, I would like to have a painting like this, but I haven't fully formulated in my head. 
AI, whatever tool it is, uh, please help me. Give me some base case inspiration. And that allows me to then go off and create in a human capacity what inevitably I want to do. So I think that's where AI might become an interesting tool. I think it'll be that way. I don't know. But but actually, I would call something like that a kind of decoration tool, you know? Um, I think what is crucial in in AI-generated art is the um, ground-laying model. If you... What do you mean by that? Feed, I mean, if you look into a large uh, language model, model you know, um, and for example, the content that it gets teached by. Mm -hmm. I mean, this influences heavy the general output of the AI later on and of the model later on. And for example, I have a friend working with um, not Midjourney. Um, what is the other one? Midjourney is the big one right now. Um, there's also and then there's it begins one... with an L. Oh, Lucid, Lurid. Uh, I, I forget. Uh, but that that stable diffusion. Stable yeah, diffusion. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one too. Stable diffusion. Yeah, and he's working with stable diffusion, and he's feeding um, the AR, the AI, um, the model. Um, with pre-selected pieces, pre-selected content. And this is how he kind of influences how the AI at the end, with his prompt, generates the art piece. And I think this is a super cool approach because um, it's a mix of the things you just said and a mix of human creativity that really influences, in cooperation with AI, how the artwork is put out. And you can always, of course, kind of set new prompts to kind of influence even more. But I don't think that AI on itself will be a contributor to really historic art. I, I think that I hope it doesn't work out that way. Um, I say I think that I hope that because, I mean, AI yeah. is by all definitions, a purely functional, logical model, right? It's pure logic, right? It's it's black and white. Yep. And I know that it's not black and white because you have like all the random forest trees and all that stuff. Um, it's a little bit more of a science, but what it is missing is emotion. So there has, and for me at least, and again, not understanding anything about art, but art is emotional for most people. Anybody that truly appreciates art, there's not much, I think, logic behind it, but there's an emotional attachment to it. Like, okay, there has to be a logical element that, well, okay, a model has to have good facial features um, that would typically be considered attractive. So therefore, uh, that's the model you want to be basing your art around. Or, okay, do we want to have it centered or off-centered, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. I'm assuming artists think about I logic. Mean, it, takes, it takes the mystique of the art, in my opinion. And, uh, and the, I mean, of course, the process is still kind of mystique because you don't really know what the AI is doing. Um, but I fully agree with you. Emotions and human creativity is the source of art. And um, See, but this is where I think the AI itself can become creative. We're already seeing its ability to be creative in of itself. However, under uh, with the guise, with the guidance of a human being behind it. So that's where I think I hope it turns out that way. Because there is 
I mean, I don't know where AI is going to take the world. And this is, we've gotten way too philosophical on this than actually I intended on doing. But I mean, AI is at the end of the day, just a machine. It doesn't have what we think of as the soul. It doesn't have emotions. Maybe it will in the future. I have no goddamn clue. Is it creative yet? I, I, I don't know. Exactly. I, well, but I don't... Hmm. I don't think it's creative unto itself. In a vacuum, I don't think the AI itself is creative. It's only able to be seemingly creative through human guidance. But then again, AI is only ever able to be mathematical through human guidance initially as well, too. It's just evolved to a point where it's more calculable. It has higher functioning uh, calculability than humans do. Maybe AI gets there from a pure creative perspective over time i don't know but i think that's just where there's a fundamental difference between how our brains operate because it's not we're not 100 logical creatures like what ai is supposed to be or at least what ai seems to be now so i do think that element of creativity which is largely i think driven by emotion uh hopefully that will always be uh in art moving forward I mean, I don't know uh, how to end that even more and properly on point. Um, this is a statement. <laughs> um, I fully agree and I loved how the conversation kind of turned off into, into the arts. And um, I would love to actually continue that talk if you, if you would be down. Um, I think we absolutely have to get you back on the show sometime. I really enjoyed this. Um, but I mean, in I the interest of time, I don't want to take up too much of yours. Um, yeah. I, what are some final thoughts that you might have for people that are looking to explore and deep dive a little bit more into the art world? So, I mean, I think um, tokenization in general is uh, has the potential to really enable, as we discussed today, uh, retail investors to really participate in an asset class that they were not able to participate before. And clear is um, high net worth, ultra high net worth individuals have had invested in art for um, hundreds of years. Um, so it enables really, and it opens a market. And I think, and this is also the vision of art trade, that that can lead to a development in the art market that is uncomparable because the people that are now in the museum could own parts of the museum, you know? Um, and the interaction with the arts itself in terms of cultural interaction and financial interception, uh, in interaction would be aligned. And uh, this is the vision of art trade. We are working on make it like accessible, tradable, and of course also experienceable and uh, we will continue working on that well i look forward to it um i don't know i'm american so you probably block me from joining your platform for aml purposes but uh this is what i use my wife at the moment yes uh, well so i use my wife's passport for everything she has accounts oh, cool. at binance and everything else um so maybe Perfect. i'll try to get my wife to sign up yeah uh but i really appreciate yeah. the time david thank you for joining us on proof of words uh we're gonna have to make sure we get you back again sometime soon Thank you so much, Patrick. It was nice chatting with you and get to know you and see you soon.